0: Science is pretty great. Um, I I know that's not a very controversial statement. Uh, A lot of people think science is great. I'm not going to find a whole lot of people out there, uh, a lot of reasonable, well-respected people who think science is really stupid. But throughout the course of human history, there have been a lot of really brave people who have had to conduct scientific experiments without really, truly understanding what was going to happen. And a lot of times... Things went well. All right. But there were a couple of cases where maybe the outcome was not ideal. Power. And as a dog Weird. sits beside me, me uh, we're going to talk about. Welcome to our weird world. I am your host, John Henson, and this week we are talking about some uh, science and and some people who did some scientific things and some some stuff happened. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna look at the stories of Henry Coxwell, uh, the rainmaker, Duncan McDougal, and Lawn Chair Larry Walters. And um, yeah, these stories are really just all over the board. They span. Uh, over a hundred years in human history, um, and just uh, just really interesting. It's not it's not going to be some like crazy story of like the discovery of something you've ever heard of. More than likely, uh, it's a pretty uh, pretty obscure science. But uh, these people did their best to make it. Happen. So let's So our stories today start uh, in the mid 19th century Um, and around this time, mankind in general was just getting bored of traveling long distance by covered wagons and horseback. And, you know, although like rail and automobiles were okay, you know, in terms of, um, you know, Going into the future, I mean, they did have trains at this point as well. Uh, Cars were just, uh, you know, a couple of decades away. But mankind just really wanted to fly. And when French brothers Joseph Michel and Jacques-Étienne Montgolfier, that killed that French pronunciation, um, when they took the first manned hot air balloon flight in 1783, the sky was literally the limit, as long as you had a wicker basket and a lot of highly flammable liquid. Well, in 1862, the British Association for the Advancement of Science, which is the most specifically named organization ever, uh, commissioned Dr. James Glacier and Henry Coxwell to fly a hot air balloon into the upper reaches of the atmosphere to see just how close they could get to outer space. Coxwell uh, constructed this uh, hot air balloon with 93,000 cubic feet of capacity and and, uh, and appropriately named it the Mammoth. And then, uh, Coxwell and Dr. Glacier lifted off from Wolverhampton on September 5th, 1862 to try to get into outer space, which mind bogglingly stupid, like someone tries that today. You're an idiot. All right. But they didn't realize what was in outer space at this point. It's 1862. They just think, I don't know what they thought. Like it just goes, um, the two easily ascended to 20,000 feet and decided to keep going because they clearly lacked any idea that it got harder to breathe the higher you went. Uh, but then things started to go downhill, figuratively, of course. Um, um, at 24,000 feet, the balloon's valve line became tangled, and Coxwell was forced to climb out of the basket to untangle the lines. All right? So they're 24,000 feet above the ground. All right? They are flying at airplane height. on your little delta flight and this dude gets out of the basket and goes up and tries to untangle the lines that's insanity um by let's see where did we go um glacier uh then passed out at around twenty-eight thousand feet leaving coxwell to man the balloon himself but rather than descending back down coxwell kept going up because like whatever you know science got to do it for science Um, By the time the balloon had crossed the 35,000-foot mark, Coxwell's hands had turned black from frostbite. Uh, And then figuring at this point they should probably head back down rather than suffocate and freeze to death in the air, Coxwell had to use his teeth to adjust the balloon and start the descent back down to Earth. All right, They They were almost, what, almost seven miles up in the air at this point. And dude is like frozen with frostbite the other guy is passed out my computer's making noises it's really getting on my nerves and he has to use his teeth to basically save him and glacier's life um the journey to the higher reaches of the atmosphere ended up yielding several new pieces of scientific information um they realized that the higher you go in the atmosphere there is less moisture um, this helped meteorologists actually learn about how clouds form and how rain works. Um, at, up until that point, rain had just kind of been, you know, seen as like a miracle of God. Just like, well, whenever God wants it to rain, He'll make it rain. But no, they actually then learned that it has to do with atmospheres and moisture and stuff that I didn't didn't bother learning about because even though I wanted to be a meteorologist when I got older. Physics got hard, and chemistry just too much. Um, in all, they climbed almost 39,000 feet, which wasn't even replicated by a man in an airplane for over 60 years. Um, and also... And that's kind of the end of that story. But if this story does sound familiar in a way, um, there was an Amazon Prime movie called The Aeronauts that came out a couple of years ago uh, in which Coxwell's character was replaced by a woman. And the story was like this original story just wasn't exciting enough. But, um, you know, say what you will about Hollywood and their practices. But uh, yeah, two men in a balloon was replaced by a man and a woman in a balloon who then fell in love. (laughs) like I like that story like I usually don't care like I get it whatever appease the liberals and let's all be equal whatever I don't don't, don't care but that story really bothered me because this original story was just so cool in and of itself and then Hollywood came around and was just like (sighs) not cool enough but whatever um the next story here speaking of rain and and what meteorologists were able to learn. Um, In 1871, literally just nine years later, uh, Edward Powers, a former Civil War general who was in no way, shape, or form a legitimate scientist, published his book War and the Weather. Among other things, Powers noted that it usually rained a few days after a Civil War battle, and basically he was just implying that all of the explosions from the cannons and muskets affected the weather in the area specifically he theorized that the noise created by the explosions agitated the clouds causing them to release rain um obviously that sounds ridiculous but this is what they thought back then uh 20 years later in 1891 senator charles b farwell of illinois read power's book and asked the senate appropriations committee to earmark ten thousand dollars for a rainmaking operation The House, smartly, removed (laughs) this request, but the Senate thought this was an amazing idea and gave $7,000 to the Department of Agriculture's Forestry Division to make it literally to make it rain. Um, The Forestry Division, which employed genuinely smart people, wanted absolutely nothing to do with this, Um, but eventually the government found a patent attorney and noted not-scientist Robert Direnforth, whose only connection to the meteorological world was that he had had a couple of clients bring rainmaking inventions to him, hoping he could get them patented. Uh, Direnforth somehow recruited Smithsonian meteorologist George Curtis, patent office chemist Claus Rosell, and uh, Professor John Ellis to help him out and, and to help him uh, come up with a way to forcibly make it rain. So in August of that year, Direnforth and his team uh, went to Midland, Texas to begin their experiment. And the night before the first attempt, Dyeron set off a couple of explosives along the ground, and a few hours later, it actually started raining. All right. The next day, uh, Dyeron set up 60 mortars along a 1,000-foot line, and then a half mile away, he set up a line of electrical kites. And then another half mile beyond that, he set up a line of hydrogen balloons. However, these experiments didn't initially go as planned. Uh, the mortars were too weak to make an impact, so Darren Forth's men exploded 160, uh, 156 pounds of rack which is this chemical mixture of potassium chlorate and nitrobenzene. M- makes things go boom. Um, the winds along the prairies in Texas disrupted the balloons, causing them to drift away for several miles before they actually ended up popping. And although no rain fell at the test site... Deerenforth saw a thunderstorm in the distance and truly believed that he had created it. Had nothing to do with the fact that it's Texas in, you know, where, when was it? August, I think is what I said. Yeah, no, it's Texas in August. Storms pop up all the time for no reason, but Deerenforth really believed that he had created this thunderstorm. Um, over the next 10 days, Darren Forth's men attempted several rounds or emptied several rounds of ammunition and exploded dynamite as high into the air as they could. And much to everyone's surprise, it actually rained several times and Darren Forth happily reported his results back to the government. All right. Doesn't matter that there's just like, again, it's humid in August, the weather patterns lined up, storms were going to form anyway. Alright, but Forth, he's out there, he's making explosions, he thinks that he is actually creating these rainstorms. Um of course, like most people were skeptical, but things really started to change when Mayor John T. Ellis from El Paso, uh, noted desert city, invited Darren Forth's team to make rain in the desert. Uh, Ellis provided Deerenforth a thousand pounds of dynamite to go bomb the skies, and later that night, rain fell on one side of El Paso. And Deerenforth happily took credit for it. Um, he Forth conducted additional experiments in Corpus Christi and San Diego, and actually made it rain both times in both cities. Uh, never mind that it was the rainy season in the Southwest, where rain was already very likely every day, and never mind that forecasters had already predicted rain on the days when Forth conducted his experiments. Uh, Congress didn't care at all and allocated 10,000 more dollars for continued experiments in 1892. All right. Like, regardless of how you feel about our government today, just know that it's always been pretty stupid at times. All right. Very rarely have they ever actually done the right thing. All right. How this country has gotten to where it has gotten is honestly a miracle because it is always been run by incredibly stupid people. Um, In October, Deerenforth conducted an experiment near Washington, D.C. at Fort Meyer. He lit up the sky with as many explosives as he could get his hands on, but nothing happened aside from dozens of complaints from nearby residents who were jolted out of bed to the sound of explosions throughout the night sky. And then after another failed experiment in San Antonio, people realized that it probably was just a crazy coincidence all along. And, at that point, uh, Deer and Forth earned the nickname Dry Henceforth, because fun late 1800s humor, I guess. And he eventually just faded from the public eye. Uh, next story here uh, ha- starts on April 10th, 1901, when uh, Dr. Duncan McDougall needed something new to study. Uh, growing up in a very religious area, he was well aware that something needed to leave a person's body when it died in order for it to s- ascend to heaven. Well, that something was a person's soul, and since the principle of mass states that matter cannot be created or destroyed, but simply transferred, McDougal needed to know what happened to a person's soul when they died. Uh, Fun fact to show you how dumb I was as a kid: um, you know, I grew up in a very religious environment. I felt like I was kind of smart, but every time I heard like preachers talking about your soul, like you know, your soul, this you know you know, save your soul. God's going to save your soul. God, you know, your soul's going to go to heaven, whatever the case may be. I always thought that your soul was in your foot. And I thought, well, God, that's really weird. Like, why does Jesus care so much about a thing that's in your foot? And, you know, you get it probably, you know, there's S-O-U-L and then there's S-O-L-E, two completely different things. I thought they were the same thing. Um, McDougall, However, he wanted to know if the soul was actually a thing uh, in the body. And so he found six terminally ill patients to agree to this experiment that he was created. And so what he did is he created six custom beds fit with a scale that accurately measured a person's weight within two tenths of an ounce or one fifth of an ounce, I guess. Um, as each person died, McDougal measured their weight before and after death. Each time... You're never going to believe this. Like something actually happened. Uh, the person actually lost a small amount of weight after they died. And McDougal couldn't believe it. You probably can't believe it. Like, whoa, this is proof. It's, it's proof that God is real, you guys. Hang on. Um, he called in four other doctors to measure the remaining patient's weights for themselves, and they all achieved the same results mcdougall even tried to discredit himself by taking every possible detail into account such as the amount of air in a person's lungs how much waste was in their system but whatever he did it didn't matter like the the numbers all ended up working out or not working out i guess if they lost weight right after they died um and so mcdougall concluded that the weight lost shortly after death was the soul leaving the body which weighed a total of 21 grams I don't know how much, how many grams are in an ounce. I didn't do that conversion, um, but I mean, it's not a lot, right? Like you get busted for 21 grams of marijuana. You're not, you, you, I mean, you probably like have it confiscated and the cop will laugh at you like, come on, lightweight. Anyway, um, McDougal then continued his experiment by letting 15 dogs die because maybe dogs have souls. Or maybe they don't. What happens to dogs? Um, however, none of the dogs had a change in weight, um, which led McDougal to believe that only humans had souls, which makes a lot of you know, religious people sad because maybe they won't see their beloved dogs in heaven. And that also completely discredits the Disney movies. All dogs go to heaven. Anyway, um, a physics teacher in Los Angeles performed the same experiment on mice in 1917 and didn't find any weight loss either. Still, McDougal was super skeptical about all of this, and he spent his remaining years attempting to photograph the soul leaving the body after death. Like, this really screwed with his head. Um, He was never successful. He never got that photograph. Uh, Another physician, however, came forward shortly after McDougal published his findings that revealed a more likely answer to what was actually going on. Uh, Augustus P. Clark noted that shortly after someone dies, the lungs stop cooling the blood, which causes the body temperature to rise and produce sweat. Coincidentally, the amount of sweat lost after death comes out to approximately 21 grams. So... Is it the soul leaving the body? Well, hang on. Hey, you know what? Maybe the soul exits the body in the form of that little bit of sweat. And when that sweat evaporates, then the soul leaves. Who knows? Who knows? I don't know. All right. But it's interesting. Um, Our last story here uh, is the story of Larry Walters. It's a little bit more recent. Uh, Larry, he just wanted to fly. But thanks to inferior genes that resulted in poor eyesight, he was rejected by the Air Force, seemingly crushing his dreams of becoming a pilot. But Larry wasn't just one to find a new hobby. He was going to figure out a way to fly one way or the other. He remembered back to a time when he was 13 years old and visited a military surplus store and saw the weather balloons that were hanging from the ceiling. From there, he knew what he had to do. All right, And look, why... Why are there military surplus stores? Like, who is selling military-grade equipment to civilians? That seems like a very bad idea. Um, In 1982, Larry decided to try to fly using those balloons because it had worked so well in various cartoons that he had seen. Like, literally, that's how he, like, came up with this idea. He was just watching Looney Tunes, and he's like, oh, yeah, that can probably work. Um, He figured he could fly over the Mojave Desert and pop as many balloons as he needed with his pellet gun to land. None of this sounded crazy to him yet. Later that year, Larry and his girlfriend, Carol Van Dusen, bought uh, 45 45, foot weather balloons and several helium tanks. And when the seller of the helium tanks, California Toy Time Balloons, asked why they needed so many tanks, Larry presented a forged request from Filmfare Studios, which was his employer at the time, and told Toy Time Balloons that the supplies were for a television commercial, and they bought it. And they gave him everything he asked for and sent him on his way. And that probably happens all the time. Like, especially out in California, you've got these studio people come in and be like, hey, we need this, 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 and this for a commercial. And it probably, like, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Go for it. Um, Now that Larry had his balloons, he had to construct the perfect cockpit. And he found a lawn chair, figuring that would be good enough, and attached 43 helium balloons to it. After putting on a parachute and strapping himself in, Larry grabbed his pellet gun, a CB radio, some sandwiches, and some beer, and told his friends to cut the cords attached to his jeep that were keeping him on the ground in San Pedro. Uh, within minutes, Larry was 16,000 feet in the air. All right, there's a guy who is three miles up in the air, strapped to a lawn chair with balloons. All right, like he's not. And I don't even know if he was actually strapped into the seat. He's just sitting in a lawn chair with a cooler and a pellet gun with a bunch of balloons around him. Um, after about 45 minutes, um, and actually two different commercial airliners saw Larry flying um, and reported that you know when, when they saw him. Um, after about 45 minutes, Larry started popping the balloons with his pellet gun until, uh-oh, he dropped the gun. <laughs> the gun fell out of the chair, flew back down to earth which left him on this slow but kind of controlled descent to the ground where he was eventually caught by power lines and electrocuted to death. The end. No, I'm kidding. Um, He was caught by power lines, but he actually survived even though his crash caused a 20-minute blackout around the Long Beach area. Uh, He was immediately arrested even though police didn't actually know what specific law he had broken yet. It was just like one of those things where this guy, he's obviously broken some sort of law. Like, I don't know what that law is. But he did something wrong. We just we just need to need to get rid of him for a second. Um, In the end, uh, he was fined fifteen hundred dollars. That's it. Uh, Following the stunt, uh, Lawn Chair Larry, as he came to be known, made an appearance on Late Night with David Letterman and was featured in an ad for Timex for some reason. Um, But he didn't he never made much money from his fame. And the lawn chair, which was nicknamed Inspiration One, was given to uh, this random kid despite requests from the Smithsonian Institute to have it on display there. Um, Unfortunately, this story uh, does not have a happy ending. Uh, Larry committed suicide by shooting himself in the chest in Angeles National Forest on October 6, 1993. Um, I don't know what kind of ending you were expecting, but I guarantee you that wasn't it. Um, However, uh, and not surprisingly, in the least uh Larry's stunt actually inspired others to do something similar um on july 7th 2007 47 year old kent couch flew a lawn chair with 105 balloons 240 miles from bend oregon to north powder oregon a year later he flew another 240 miles and landed somewhere in idaho so i you know i guess it kind of worked um one that didn't work Uh, What happened on January 13th, 2008, when Adelir Antonio de Carli, a Roman Catholic priest from Ampere, Brazil, strapped 600 balloons to a chair, actually got up to 17,400 feet and landed in Argentina. Three months later, he upped it again. He got up to 20,000 feet with a thousand balloons. I don't know how you get that many balloons on a chair, but he did it. Uh, this time, however, he got caught in a storm and crashed at sea. His dead body was found three months later. And that ends today's story. <music> Science. It is a thing. Um, I, don't, I don't really know how to recap that at all. Uh, I hope you learned something, and that's that's about as good as I can do. I don't know science is hard, but some people made it look easy, some people made it look very difficult, and for that, we can all be better people I guess i don't know i I don't know what I'm saying. let's see what we learn <laughs> What did we learn? Number one, uh, rain is not made by uh, the love of Jesus Christ. It's just a naturally occurring phenomenon in the atmosphere based on how much moisture is in the air, uh, pressures, uh, and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, Number two, you can't make rain artificially. Like, I know we're trying to do that, Um, it hasn't happened yet. All right, rain just has to happen on its own you definitely can't just detonate a bunch of bombs in the air and wait for thunderstorms to come around it's just that's just not how it works uh and number three uh do we have souls are, are do they have actual mass or are they an abstract human thought uh to try to explain uh one very confusing element of religion uh, we still don't know um but it's interesting to know that When you die, you do lose a little bit of weight, and while some doctors believe that that weight comes out in the form of sweat, um, who knows what is in that sweat, and who knows what becomes of that sweat once it evaporates, so it's interesting, it's very, very interesting. Week on our weird world, uh, definitely a weird episode. Uh, depending on what you believe, uh, you'll either think that the people we talk about are completely insane or it's going to affirm everything you have ever heard. We are going to look at uh, three people who came back from the dead. All right. And not like zombies. All right, not not like that, but like people who died, flatlined, were pronounced dead, and they experienced some things, or at least that's what they say. And then they came back to life, and they remembered all of it, and they remembered what they saw, and they started telling people about it. Is it real? Are they insane? Was it just uh, you know, uh, their subconscious or their final brain waves just going into overdrive? Who knows? But we'll look at these stories uh, next week. So, uh, thank you. Hey, one quick thing. You know, if you're listening to this and you like you like it, uh, the dog here doesn't seem to like it. But um, if you if you have enjoyed this show, could you could you head over to uh, app? Thank you, dog. That's rude. Um, could you head over to Apple Podcasts and give it a give it a nice review? Give it a rating and a review. That'd be pretty sweet. Um, I've I've been doing this show for over a year and this is, I think this is the first time I've asked for a rating. I may have done it early on, but I'm, I'm really bad at promoting myself. I kind of just do this for fun. Um, but yeah, it would be really, it'd be spiffy if you, if you went over and uh, gave it a review, those things tend to help. Um, as always though, keep telling your friends, um, you know, word of mouth, it's a good way to grow a listener base. albeit very slowly um but yeah tell all your friends uh and thank you for listening and i did it out of order but i don't care keep it weird